Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. your sporting life with Peter Donegan. As always, a pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who is in that elite club of footballers. You have to be a good player to reach 200 games. This man did it with a couple of clubs. He was a controversial figure in lots of ways, but he was always colourful, always watchable. Campbell Brown, welcome. Thanks for having me, Pete. How are you, Brownie? Yeah, going well. Uh, it's nice to interview you in this circumstance because the last couple of times I've interviewed you, I think would have been not what people would expect, <laughs> not at the footy, but actually at the races. Yeah, that's right. Uh, certainly, AFL was always my biggest passion growing up, but uh, always on the side, had a love for, for racing. And um, as I got a bit older and had a, enough um, of an income, you start to buy a few race horses and um, I've had plenty of duds, but uh, I've had uh, a couple of good horses as well, which has been quite exciting. Well, I think one of the times that I interviewed you was just before the slipper That's at right. Rose Hill. One thing I noticed that day is you were towy. You were really towy before the race, and I can understand that because the slipper is a, a make-or-break race in lots of ways, apart from being worth a lot of money. What's the difference? What's the feeling like running onto the ground for a grand final, which you did, or standing there with your horse in the slipper. Can you compare the two feelings? Oh, you certainly... Well, I'm certainly much more nervous at, at horse races because only because it's up to other people. You know, the, the trainer trains it, the jockey rides it, you've got barriers, you've got will it handle, the conditions, the weather, the wind, all these sort of things. Um, and you're not really too sure. You pay the bills and you're there and, and you, you own percentages of the horse, but really it's up to other people. Whereas from a footballing point of view... I always used to run out of the ground really confident that I'd done the preparation, that I'd recovered well, that I'd had my massage, and I knew my job, my role, how I was going to go out there and play that day. And you're in control of your own destiny. And you are. You're in control. So that eliminates a lot of the nerves. It's more when you're trying to get up from an injury and you're 50-50 whether you'll play or not, um, and you decide, you put your hand up and you, you say, you look Clarko in the eye and say, I'm right to play. That's when you're a bit nervous running out there because deep down you're not too sure if you'll be able to perform it at the level that you're expected to or if you'll even get through the game. So, um, yeah, much more nervous watching the horses than ever running out um, and playing a game. Mind you, in saying that, the most nervous I've ever been in my life was just after half time. Trent Crowe had gone down in the eight grand final with his broken foot. Mm. I'd started forward and was getting into the game okay. Tom Harley was playing on me and kicked a goal and was feeling quite comfortable up forward. And um, Cam Mooney down the other end was quite dominant. I think he kicked three goals and he'd missed a couple and looked like he was going to be the the game breaker. And Clarko came to me at half time. He said, mate, we need you to do a job on Cameron Mooney. Crody's down. You need to go to full back. And I knew as soon as... Um, the Geelong players saw me walk into fullback that they'd isolate me deep, which they did. And uh, I've just remember there was a hundred thousand people at the G, and I'm walking towards Cameron Mooney, knowing that I'd 
I'm giving up six inches, mm. knowing that he's in red hot form and there's a grand final to be decided on the sec in the second half. I, th I just had that harrowing feeling that don't let me be the bloke that gets you know goals kicked on him and and costs his side the the premiership. First contest, long kick inside fifty. I come out, he comes out, and he just clunks this really strong mark, twenty five out directly in front. And I was standing on the mark. You could see the the blood just coming out of my face and, and I was standing on the mark thinking this is my worst nightmare unfolding right now and he actually hit the post mm. um, and then the game got going you know and, and we, we were, obviously we went on to win and um, Cam Mooney didn't kick another goal for the game but that was nerve wracking. I'll bet it was and especially you mentioned the fact that you were giving up so much height to Moons but you played key position um, one of your best years I think you played a lot at centre half back you'd have to be almost one of the smallest blokes <laughs> ever to play key defensive position wouldn't yeah you? probably well I'm 177 centimetres so 5'10 uh, in the old language um, and yeah I, I, I was much more comfortable playing on the talls than I was the smalls because a lot of those guys, once you brought the ball to ground, um, your job was pretty much done. So um, ha had quite a good vertical leap for a guy my size and could keep up with them on the lead with my leg speed. So just be in the contest. There wasn't the chopping of the arm rule back then, so you could get away with a little bit more, um, bring the ball to ground. And um, with the smaller guys uh, that really troubled me, like Jeff Farmer and, um, and Milne and guys like that, you could do a great job keeping them to... 10 possessions for the game and they'll kick six goals three on you on their left foot right foot in the air on the ground sell candy nudge you under the ball all those little things that um you, you dread it as a uh, as a defender so much preferred to play on the tours you've talked about that 2008 grand final brownie so why don't we talk about it now everyone regards that premiership as a premiership that was won probably two years before you expected to win a premiership was that the feeling amongst the club that you were building towards something not necessarily in that year but maybe a year or two down the track yeah i think that's absolutely a fair comment um clarko had only been there for that was his fourth year he came in um 2005 and we only won about five games and 2006 we won eight games but we still were a long way out of playing finals footy 2007 on the back of really Buddy Franklin um, and Jared Ruffhead having breakout years. We make the finals and win our first final, but I think the general consensus was that we're still a fair way off the best sides in the comp. Uh, in 2008, we just had a, a fantastic year, we full of confidence. We were quite young, and we were beginning to master that full-ground press that the media called the Clarko Cluster, and that was revolutionary no one no other club had ever tried anything like that before done it and we were about 18 months into it and beginning to perfect it and sides simply didn't know how to get through it they tried to um, kick long down the line they tried to use their hands through it they tried to chip it and maintain possession and um, we just did it really really well so by about I think we played Geelong at round 17 or 18 that year and they'd won the flag the year before they were clearly the best side in the competition and we went into that game and lost by seven points and could have won. And that's the first time as a group, and uh, I remember Clarko at recovery the next day, mentioning premiership for the first ever time because he refused to mention it. And he just said, boys, that's the best side in the competition and we arguably should have won. Um, if we continue to identify some areas of our game and get better... There's no reason why we can't win the premiership this year. We're not going to put a ceiling on this young club. And um, we always play well against Geelong. 
And so when we went into the game on that particular day, we won our first final by 10 goals, and then we won our second final against St Kilda by about 15 goals. We cruised through the finals. We went into that, that game uh, underdogs. No one really gave us a chance, but there was a quiet confidence about us that day. Hmm. You mentioned you were a young side. We've seen what's happened to young sides in the last couple of years that have won the premiership. The Bulldogs, I think they finally admit now there was a hangover Yep. when they denied it all the way through last year. Richmond, we don't know what is going to transpire. You were a young team. Did you celebrate it well? Oh, you do. You celebrate it. But I put the the premiership hangover... As soon as you say that word, everyone just assumes that you've just partied the whole time and everything like that. I put it down to a number of things. Um, part of the hangover is the opposition for six months doing, you know, looking into your game plan and how you won that premiership and picking it apart. So naturally, you roll up the next year and think that, you know, you're just going to do it again and you can't mm. all of a sudden. So there's a couple of percent, maybe a goal or two here and there. Um, certainly the limited preparation you do have rather than you know if sides aren't going to make the finals they put their good players out a week or two before the season's over to get their shoulders and ankles and knees done you could play in a grand final you have that week to celebrate or commiserate whatever it may be then you're going in for your surgeries in the middle of October you can't get much work genuine really good work in until after Christmas so you're behind the eight ball physically no doubt about that um, and then there's just the question on hu- of hunger absolutely how much does it absolutely mean to you this year yeah. that it did the year before because you've climbed the mountain and everyone knows it's harder to, to stay there than it is to um, climb it so all of a sudden you become the hunted and young teams I don't think handle that as well hmm. if you add all them up 1% here 2% there 3% in such an even competition that's a 5 or 6 goal swing and you're losing those games that you might have won the year before. So I put it the hangover under numerous things. You're like, not a drinking hangover, but not just a combination yeah, a co- of factors. And certainly the psychological uh, element of it is massive in footy. Like, are you still as fanatical, yeah. dedicated, and, and all that sort of thing? Given your pedigree, was it always going to be footy? Yeah, all I ever wanted to do as a kid growing up was to play footy. If you'd have asked me as an eight-year-old in class, you know, people would say, I want to be a policeman, a fireman. Oh, I said, I want to play AFL footy. I just absolutely loved it. Lived Who did you barrack for? Well, I grew up in Perth. I lived there till I was 10, and we went to a lot of West Coast Eagles games. So my first taste of, of footy was with West Coast. Then we moved to Melbourne in 1993, and the old man got a job at Richmond. Um and so we went to the Tigers games you know, every single week um, and I fell in love with, with the Tigers and they made that good run into the preliminary final in 95 and Nick Daffy and mm. Scotty Turner and guys like that. And um, So I was a Richmond supporter and then I sort of, once you get to 15 or 16, um, I was playing footy every week myself. I could never go to games. I sort of didn't really have a team or be as supportive of Richmond as I was. Then the draft comes along and um, you're happy to go anywhere. Mm. How is the old man? Yeah, Mel's going well. He's um, he's a larger-than-life character, he as is. you know. Um, he always brought me up to uh, speak my mind. And, um, you know, we're big on just having fun, enjoying ourselves and, um, and not take life too seriously. So he's had a few heart issues um, over the journey. He's got a defibrillator in there now. He's a diabetic, so he's had to manage that over the last... Oh, 25 years, but um, 
He's always kept his sense of humour, and uh, his health's probably as good as it's it's been for a long time for an overweight man. <laughs> Everybody has got this perception of your old man as the big bad bear uh, because of those famous bits of footage. He's great company. He's a good fellow, your old man. He's certainly got that streak in him, but um, that's that doesn't come out very often. When it does, you know, everyone will know about it. But um, he's he's uh, he's got a heart of gold. Um, he is good company. I think everyone that spends any time with him walk away thinking, you know, he's different to how they. Uh, perceived him, and he certainly helped out um, a lot of a lot of people uh, throughout his not just his footy career, but right throughout the journey. So, um, yeah, if you know him, um, I, I, I think you'd like him. It's just occurred to me that uh, now I've done this with two generations because <laughs> I shared a radio studio with your old man on <laughs> quite a few occasions. So it's it, nice to be able to do it with yeah. you as well. Why don't we take our first break, Brownie, and then we'll come back and talk about the start of the journey at Hawthorne and then the journey which eventually took you up to Queensland. Campbell Brown is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And the 200 gamer premiership player, All Australian Campbell Brown, is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. Brownie, when you first started making that journey, you talked about being drafted. The one thing that they did say about you as a young player was that you were slow. Yep. How uh, did you become fast? Well, well um, I trained hard. It was really funny. From 10 years of age till about 13, um, I was quite a dominant young footballer, you know, winning um, best and fairest and comp best and fairest. Then all of a sudden, it got to that period of your life where people mature and go through adolescence, a little bit uh, different stages, and I was a late developer. So 14, 15, 16, I couldn't get near it because all of a sudden you're playing against bigger bigger guys and... Um, you felt like you just your body was changing and you lost all your ability, really. Um, and uh, you're right. I was told um, I got got into the Victorian under sixteen Vic Metro squad of fifty, and they cut it to forty, and I made that. And then they cut it to thirty, and I made that. And uh, we got to Optus Oval uh, on the last night before they picked the final squad of twenty five, and there were two to get cut. And David Dixon was the coach at the time. I saw him sort of pull someone out from a training drill, tell them the bad news. And I thought, okay, there's one left to get cut. And I'm trying not to get his, mm. his uh, in his eye line. He, he calls me across. And sure enough, uh, I was um, the last guy left out of the squad. Um, and I, I sort of was expecting it. You're hoping, you're holding on to hope that you, you can squeeze you in. But it wasn't a great surprise. And the two things he said to me were, we think you're a bit too small. And we think you're a bit too slow. So... Going away, driving home from Optus Oval that night with the old man, you're, you're bitterly disappointed. Um, he says, Son, well, you can't do anything about being too small. That's just the way you are. But if he said you're too slow, why don't we work on that? So um, hired Bowden Babacek, who was the uh, the guru, the, the speed technique guru at the time at Hawthorne. And every Tuesday night after school, I would um, go straight down to Glenfree Oval um, and I'd do you know, an hour, hour and a half of speed work. And that entails just running technique and bounding and hopping and skipping and all these sorts of um, drills. And I did that for 18 months, and it really improved me. And to the point where two years later, under 18s, and this is the crunchy, if you want to get drafted, this is where you need to you know, play well. Got into the um, Vic Metro squad again of 50, and David Dixon, the under-16 head coach, was now the under-18 head coach. Mm. 
and um, they cut 50 to 40 and I made the cut and then they cut it to 30 and I made that cut. The last night at Victoria Park this time, there's three to get cut and uh, I knew I was right on the borderline um, again and he, he called over one and cut them and called over another, cut them and then he called me over and I said, you're not going to read about this. This is deja vu happening again. Second year in a row that I'm going to be basically the last person cut. He called me over and said, uh, Campbell, I just want to let you know you're in the squad. Um, and the reason you're in the squad is not because you're any better than him, him or him, but I went down to Glenfrey Oval. I was watching the Hawks train. I was in the social club having a beer and I saw this young kid with his school bag over his shoulder come out onto Glenfrey Oval and start running up and down the oval after they'd finished training. I turned to my mate and I said, oh, who's that? And, he, and my, his mate said, oh, that's Campbell Brown. Um, he comes down here every Tuesday night to train because apparently a coach told him he was too slow. Yeah. He didn't realise he was saying that to the actual coach. And that to me just showed a famous saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get. A classic example because David went away, gave me feedback and then saw how much it meant to me that I would go away and train on it. Now, I didn't turn into Usain Bolt. My speed improved a little bit, but I wasn't lightning quick after it. But it just showed him that it meant enough to me to go away and train and work on it. And that's why I made the Vic Metro squad that year. And I had a really good carnival. I played on Ashley Sampy. I played on Gary Ablett Jr. and I played on uh, one of the Burgoynes, not um, not Sean or Peter, but uh, one of the, the relatives, and beat all three. And on the back of that, I went from, will I get drafted? Maybe, you know, if he's lucky to, uh, you know, a, a second round draft pick. Did you ever try and get Bowden Babacek to uh, impart his knowledge to some of the racehorse trainers that you've had on some of the slower ones and yeah. try and get them to run a bit quicker? We had a horse called Babacek. That's, yes. uh, that's how fond the Brown family is of him. Um, and it won a few races. Um, so we sort of honoured Bowden by calling a, a horse uh, Babacek. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's just really it's funny. Some guys um, have that leg speed. Some have it but don't know how to harness it. And... Uh, Quite often, the harder you try and run, if you're all tense and you're trying, the slower you actually go. So it's actually about you go quicker at 95% when you're up and relaxed and things like that. They're all the things he taught me, but couldn't uh, wouldn't be where I am today without a guy like Bowden Babacek, who's just the, the heart and soul of a footy club, um, and he's helped many a basketballer and you know, Shane Crawford yeah. basically dedicated his Brownlow medal to him. He's just a super, super man. So... Here you are at Hawthorne. You're in one of the most famous clubs in the competition. 2007, we already mentioned the fact that you had a great year in 2007, All-Australian. What made it such a good year for you? Why were you so good in that year, better than you've ever been before, probably? Um, a lot of luck. Um, you know, the body, I remember the the body that year just, I would finish games and not even have a corky, nothing. You know, it's just one of those freak years that... Um, it's hard enough getting up to play each week, and when you're getting injuries, and you know you can't train during the week, and things like that, your body gets sore and tired. I just went through a run of um, really good luck with injury. I uh, played 24 or 25 games. I missed round one with suspension, believe it or not. But, really? Uh, <laughs> and, oh, I better write that down. Yeah. I better ask you about that. There's suspension. <laughs> I'm sure they're coming. Those questions. <laughs> um, and Clarko sort of, I was playing on, um, I was more a rebounding defender. We had this lingo at Hawthorne, rebounding defender or negating defender were the two words. And he liked two negating defenders and four rebounding defenders. And um, he liked his rebounding defenders to be good users of the footy and good decision makers, which 
probably weren't my strong points. So he liked the ball in the hands of Hodge and Birchall and Ladson and Guerra and those guys. So all of a sudden, he just identified that Trent, Trent Crowe was the big gorilla down back that played full back. Um, and if we could turn me into uh, a negating guy on a taller opponent, that'd be really good for the structure of the team. And um, I think Scotty Lucas was my first assignment. He'd seen Harry O'Brien play on Scotty Lucas on Anzac Day, and Harry did a fairly good job. So he came to me that week and said, how would you like to play on Scotty Lucas? I loved the challenge. And I said, yep, beautiful. Played must, on him. Must have been 20 centimetres or there. Yeah, it was. And he was leading the Coleman at the time. Um, yeah. He'd started the year on fire. And... Um, he was a lead up forward, so I just thought if I could stay with him on the lead and get the ball to ground, like I'd mentioned, job done. Because he wasn't a big, strong pack mark. Um, and I played well on him. And then the next week we went to Perth to play Frio. And Clarko came up to me during the, the week, sort of... I thought he was tongue-in-cheek, but he said, you got Pavlich this week. And sure enough, I had Pav and um, kept him to one goal. And we, we lost that, that game, but did another solid job. Then the next week we had St Kilda at the MCG... Um, on a Saturday night, and he said, "Rewalt." It just it went from there um, that I just started to play centre half back, and I picked up all those players um, right th- throughout the course of the year. And had plenty of support from from my teammates, obviously, but um, resulted in all Australian. When I probably wouldn't have been in the best two hundred players in the competition leading into two thousand and seven, to having a bit of a breakout year, we started to win a few more games, and. Um, and yeah, it was named All Australian, which was you know, probably up up there with the Premiership, one of the greatest moments in my career. So you had these two fantastic years: the All Australian year, the Premiership year. But it wasn't that far after that that you were heading in another direction. Did that other direction come because they didn't want you, or did it come because you wanted to go up north and be part of the new adventure? No, I love the Hawthorne Footy Club, and and always did, and um, certainly. Uh, I think you need to know when the writing's on the wall a little bit. Mm. Clarko is, in my mind, the best list manager in the comp in terms of you. Um, it gets the best out of players, but then when you don't fit into the structure or the game plan or your form drops away a bit, um, he identifies that and, and you leave on really, really good terms. And a lot of players, Xavier Ellis, um, Clinton Young, you know, players like that, um, that were released from their contracts. They they go on good terms, but um, they never probably get get to the same heights as they were at Hawthorne. He's happy to, in the last few years, move on Mitchell and Hodge. And that. So 2009, we missed the finals. Um, the club was, there was a little bit of angst floating around, a bit like the doggies are in the moment. You know, win a flag as a young group, miss the finals. It's a bit of a, uh, scrutiny becomes tenfold. I was Put on the trade table to Port Adelaide um, and had one year to run on my contract and decided I didn't want to go to Port Adelaide, but they made a play for me. Hawthorne were okay with it if I wanted to go. Um, I wasn't upset at all because I'd been in the system eight years and I know how it works, you know. Um, But I did come back in 2010 and want to make a really good point of having a good year and just seeing what eventuated. Um, And Hawthorne had offered me a two-year deal um, I really wanted a, a three-year deal. Um, I was 27 at the time. I just turned 27. And the Suns, you know, three-year deal. Um, the money was better, but um, I was more starting to look at longevity in the game. Do I play? Do I stay at Hawthorne for two years? Knowing in my heart of hearts that I'd be out of the team in 18 months or 12 months. We had um, Stratton, Bruce, 
Suckling, Chiray, these guys coming through the ranks. And you could tell they were going to be very, very good players. And um, my position within the team, it just sort of, I became the swing man, the utility that was good for stuff, but really great for nothing in the end. Um, play forward one week, play down back, fill a hole. So I just read the play a little bit and um, you know, decided to take that opportunity to go to the Gold Coast on terrific terms with the Hawks and went up there for a fresh start and really didn't know what the future would hold because it was such a young club and there were high aspirations because we had so many um, young draft picks and, and the other players coming in who we'd heard rumours who they might be but we weren't entirely sure. Um, but it was I thought I looked at it as a good journey and I'd get four, maybe five years out rather than just the two at Hawthorne. Was it a culture shock, Brownie, because you go from Melbourne, this football mad city, and you go from a famous club in Hawthorne to all of a sudden going up there, a non-traditional AFL state. I think you were working out of demountables a lot of the time up there. Was yeah. it a complete culture shock to you? Yeah, it, it certainly was. Um, bigger than I expected, really. And uh, it, it's hard to even put into words. You've just got, you've got, you're at a club where there's no history. There's, there's, no, you've got to create everything yourself. You're the culture, the team rules, the game plan, everything. And the facilities weren't great. Um, we didn't have a stadium. Our first three or four months uh, of training up there was that period of time where Ipswich got flooded and um, the Gold Coast and everything was underwater for, I'm talking like torrential rain, the Narang River nearly f- like um, burst, burst its, its banks. banks yeah. So we, as a young group, leading to our first AFL season, couldn't train on ovals for two months. Mm. We are in um, basketball courts and doing stationary hands and things like that. So um, then the games roll around and it's yeah, there's the excitement of a, of a franchise club starting. Um, so that first year, everything was, was great because everything was new. First game against Carlton. Um, first win. You know, first home game against Geelong at Metricon Stadium. It was quite an exciting year. And seeing Harley Bunnell, Jay Gromira, Dave Swallow, all these young guys playing was terrific. But um, that excitement sort of leveled out in year two when all of a sudden there is expectation because we won three games that we would be a better side in the second year. And um, sides just weren't allowing us to, or the young kids to play the way that they were in the first year because it was a surprise to everyone. Is Zach Smith, how good was he in the first year? Mm. And they put time and effort in and um, second year was r- a real struggle. And then I, as what happens on the Gold Coast, when the excitement wears off and the team start losing, no one rocks up to the footy. And it's almost like you become um, obsolete. You're up there and there's no build-up to a game. There's no rivalry. I used to love going to the G, Hawthorne-Essendon, my favourite. Hawthorne Collingwood, 70,000. Hawthorne Geelong games are just epic, you know. Um, you go up there and it's just rock up play. You won't hear anything if you played well. The result matters, obviously, but that's it. Hmm. You feel completely out of the AFL bubble. As it turns out, the um, culture there was described by a lot of people, people as toxic. Uh, and Carmichael Hunt... Uh, the problems that he had are now well documented. Did you see evidence of that amongst the younger brigade? Did you see them being influenced to a degree that it was not the right way to go? Um, not my first couple of years, um, certainly not. But uh, my third year there, uh, you know, it's, maybe it was just starting to creep in here and there. But um, it was always it's always kept on the down low, so you're never really uh, sure about what's actually going on. I was 
I'd go out with the boys, but because I never got involved in any of that sort of behaviour, you're just out of the loop a little bit. Um, I wouldn't say the culture is toxic up there. Um, like people think because it's the it's the party strip and things like that that um, the Gold Coast Suns were party boys and had a bad culture. It wasn't that at all. But what happened was the young boys would go out for a, a drink. We got given things like a 12 o'clock curfew and you can't go into Cavill Avenue and you can't do this and you can't do that and you're treated like absolute children. And then what happens is as soon as someone breaks that, which isn't even about like getting home at half past 12 isn't a bad thing in the big scheme of things, but because they've broken a team rule, they need to be disciplined. So there's a fine or there's a suspension from a game and things like that. And then it becomes a headline, you know, that two players were dropped because they were spotted out past curfew or whatever. Half of that was created themselves by the Gold Coast Suns by giving this group unreasonable sort of restrictions on how they could live their life, I think. And... Um, and they played into they they played into their own hands a bit by having to discipline blokes that really they shouldn't they shouldn't have even needed to worry about. We needed to worry about structure and game plan and winning and training ethics and leadership and things like that. Not you know not little little things like that that someone was spotted at quarter past twelve in the taxi rank at um, Broadbeach and he should have been home at, at the time. You know mm. things like that. So. Um, but when I was gone, when when the Carmichael Hunt um, stuff happened, that uh, that came out after me, and um, was I shocked uh, a little bit, um, you know? But I wasn't there um, f- for that that two thousand and fourteen fifteen year when things obviously got far far worse. We're going to take a break now. Uh, because you mentioned it before, the suspensions, I didn't actually have it anywhere on the rundown uh, <laughs> yeah. that I was going to ask you about Three pages that. over there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll go through this encyclopedia in the break and then we'll come back on the other side of the break and talk more to Campbell Brown. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Campbell Brown on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. All right, you mentioned it, so I'm going to go with it. 29 weeks suspension in your career. <laughs> it sounds like a lot. It didn't feel that, that much. Well, Dermot Brereton's been in this chair just a few weeks ago, so um, you're in good company. It, were you just a classic case of white line fever, Brownie? Was that it? Yeah, probably. Um, I like to play hard, as hard as you possibly could um, without sort of overstepping the mark and every now and then you, you do do that um, so 29 weeks I, I still feel like my last 10 or so weeks if it was looked at, analysed and done now under the current system I might have got two or, or, or fine um, I just felt like the way the system worked towards the end of my career with 50% loading and carryover points and all this sort of stuff that what would be a two-week suspension um, became four and five. And you know, that, that's partly my fault because of the previous amounts. But the, the crime or the punishment wasn't, um, wasn't uh, fitting the crime a little bit. Like you, you do, you'd miss time a bump, you know, and I got um, seven-week suspension for a missed time bump where the bloke got up, Aidan mm. Riley. Got up, you check he's all right. He got up, he got the free kick. You apologise. Go, geez, I might cop a fortnight there. And with the loading and, and everything, I got seven weeks. Do you reckon you got a loading because it was you? I mean, uh, no, was, there, was uh, there a little bit added? Well, you know, Stevie Baker, he, he basically got run out of the game um, 
because of his reputation and, and they hit him six times in one game for slapping Stevie Johnson's hand. Now, that's never been done before. They've never suspended anyone for something like that before and he got nine weeks. Byron Pickett, I, I wouldn't say they... It's, it, I'm not trying to deflect my responsibility in it because certainly I, you know, I put my hand up for probably nine of those 15 charges. Well, let me ask you this question directly. Did your reputation precede you? Is that the reason that there was more attention on some of Probably, the things that you did? Yeah, because as I was mentioning, that six-weeker might now be one or a yeah. fine. And my last ever game of footy, I was playing some okay footy. We I kicked three against Melbourne. We won. Um, I, I rolled over and my leg came out and sort of it, it made contact to the body of James Strauss. Now, at the time, the ball's there and I was trying to get up and everything like that. Um, he came off with a... Um, broken nose or a cut cut mouth or something like that, I ended up getting four weeks suspension, four weeks for an innocuous thing where I wasn't looking at him. I didn't even know who it was or where it was. I just I was in the act of rolling over, threw the leg out, and I copped a month for it. Now, if you looked at the vision, there's no way you'd get rubbed out for that. And I ended up, and I ended up never playing football ever again because I missed around 22. 1, 22, 23, hmm. and I was suspended for round 1 2014, which I didn't end up making it to. So, um, yeah, 29 sounds like a lot, and it was a lot. Um, I put my hand up for the majority of them as being my own fault. I reckon late in my career, though, copping seven weeks and four weeks for incidents that you wouldn't get rubbed out now for is just part and parcel of it, but I was angry hmm. at the time. You played angry. You looked as though you were playing angry at the time too. Yeah, and also that's got to do with going playing at a club that you're never winning. Yeah. All the responsibilities on the senior guys as well. And of those senior guys, Gaz was dominating. And then Michael Riscatelli, me, um, Jared Brennan, Harbrow, and Nathan Cracker had, had quit by then. It, the responsibility on us, or whenever the Suns played poorly, it came back to, righto, we're not going to go after the young kids because they're young kids. Gazza was winning Brownlows. Nathan Bock had a broken leg. The le the senior guys aren't pulling their weight, and it was always us four. And after a couple of years, um, you just it, you, you, you do. You play angry because I was used to winning. We're losing. Um, you're copying a lot of criticism that, you know, sometimes you, you don't think it's warranted because... 15 possessions uh, and keeping your opponent to you know, a goal back at Hawthorne days um, and you won when you played your role and you know you, you did all those things. It was a pat on the back. How good's he going? You played that exact same game at the Suns, but we'd lose by 10 goals. And all of a sudden it wasn't good enough. I was trying to work out you know, what exactly is good enough for a, for a side that gets pumped every single week. And you start thinking selfishly a bit and going away from what the team actually needs. Or maybe if I get 25 touches but have five goals kicked on me, mm. is that what's needed? Which is not how I like to play the game of footy. It's rare that any of us looks back in life and says, oh, I wouldn't do that or I'd do that differently. Is there one particular incident you look back on that you think, I wish I hadn't? Oh, the, the way my footy career finished with Stephen May in LA that night. You know, what happened that night? If we could have our time again, I'm sure both of us w would change what happened. So he finished up with a broken jaw, didn't he? Yes. Yep. And uh, and I ended up uh, sort of I'd never played again. That was the end of my time at the Gold Coast Suns. Um, we had a disagreement out the front of a of a bar. Um, one thing led to another, and, and we um, we got into a bit of a blue and. 
Um, he woke up the next morning with a, a fracture in his jaw, and um, that certainly wasn't my intention. I got on really, really well with Steve May. Went on footy trips together, played down back together, um, and it was just one of those things that happened. And, you know, unfortunately, um, I took responsibility for that, and, and that was it for my time at the Gold Coast. But, um, you know, had he woken up with a black eye or a chipped tooth, I dare say that um, what ended up happening wouldn't have happened. What's your relationship with him yeah, like pretty now. good. Yeah, look, we don't, we don't speak on the phone and things like that. But I go up to the Gold Coast every year for the Magic Millions, and I've you know bump bump into him every year, and we're fine. We both put it to bed. As far as I know, the majority of players um, and Stephen included didn't want me to um, end up leaving the Suns because of it. But the decision was out of the playing group's hand. It was it was in the hands of you know president, CEO, and board, and they made the call that. Um, it's not acceptable. It's a bad look as well for the for the brand of the club. And I was thirty years of age and only had one one year left in me anyway. So they probably decided that, bang, we can uh, pull the trigger and, and end it. I'm going to talk about a couple of good things. Uh, one involving the English Channel when we come back on the other side of the break, and the other thing. I want to be frank with you. I think you're a bit nuts because you played a sport where you have to hold your breath and yell things. But anyway, cupity, we'll f- cupity. Cupity, cupity. <laughs> we'll find out more about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Our final segment with Campbell Brown coming up on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And our final segment with Campbell Brown. We touched on a brownie before the break. What the hell is cubbity, cubbity, cubbity? What goes on there? Well, I didn't even know myself until I went over to a Medabad India to uh, represent the country. Um, it is like British Bulldog on a volleyball court, um, in a way. It's uh, you're seven aside, and you've got to go on and tag the opposition by foot or hand. There's no real rules. And then get back across the line before they nail you. You yeah. have to hold your breath. You have to uh, hold your breath and chant cubbity, cubbity, cubbity the whole time. When you're out there, do you think, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, we, we didn't really know the rules um, <laughs> at that time. I'll never forget, though, because it was on Star Sports in India. 280 million tuned into our first game against the host nation, India, who were the reigning cubbity champions. And um, I remember I'm in, I'm in the line having singing the national anthem, and I looked around and said... What the hell are we doing here? None of us knew the rules, but it was, a, again, another great experience. I'm all for having fun and, and challenging myself and enjoying life, and that was a one-off opportunity. Well, you challenged yourself once in the English Channel. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was pretty solid. Um, I just wanted uh, something to focus on post-footy because all of a sudden my career came to a halt. Half um, One minute I'm training for... 2014, I'm fit in pre-season. Next minute, it's all over. And I didn't really have any job opportunities at the time, as you can imagine. And um, I needed something to motivate me, to keep me sane. And and, um, and so I just started swimming because I loved swimming. And I, by then, I hated running. And, um, yeah, just thought, what can I do that's a really good challenge? I decided I wanted to swim the English Channel. Um, Shelley Taylor-Smith decided she'd coach me and I trained for 18 months for it put on the weight got to 98 kilos I was trying to get to 100 I couldn't quite get there and, and gave it a crack And um, How did you do that? Did you just eat crap? or Yeah, just ate everything I could yeah. and hired Billy Brownless as my dietitian. Okay, well that'll work yep. <laughs> um, And then unfortunately for me you get a, a one week window um, you get a boat captain that chooses the day that you'll go he looks at the weather the wind the conditions and everything and you just 
you start swimming. There's no shark cage. The boat puts along beside you and your support crew sort of lean down with a fishing wire and give you um, food and drink. And I got the best day of all time for six hours. It was honestly, you couldn't ask for better conditions. And I got about 20 plus k's in, halfway. Um, got into the separation zone between the English waters and the French waters. And then the, the weather just completely changed. The wind picked up. When that picked up, the, the chop and swell starts. And um, by the end of it, it was like cyclonic conditions. And I still was swimming and still feeling quite strong in the water. But you probably weren't moving. No, nah, and I wasn't aware of it. The boat captain um, at the 9-hour and 25-minute mark um, blew a whistle, got my attention and said, we're abandoning the swim. And I sort of had that focus of, oh, I'm not stopping swimming until I get to France. Like, this is what I've come here for. And so I've sort of given him that. And he said, oh, we didn't have the heart to tell you, but you've been swimming on the same spot for the last three and a half hours. <laughs> Jump in the boat. Um, and we've got to get back into port because it's getting really, really bad. And unfortunately, that was the end of my English Channel attempt. And I don't... Like, it was a failure, and I don't like failure. Mm. Um, but it was just one of those things that Mother Nature and plenty of better swimmers than me have gone across and, you know not got across because of that exact reason. And now uh, your life has taken you into a different area. You're now in the media. You're one of us mongrels. Um, yeah. You're enjoying the VFL. It started last weekend. Yeah, loving the VFL. Love love watching the uh, the young guys still trying to you know pursue their AFL dreams, a lot of them, and um, thoroughly enjoying the media work I do. I, um, I love radio, TV, um, and, uh, yeah, just... I like to re- remain impartial a little bit. You've got to remember that you played the game and how hard it is because I think some media um, and people get in the media and all of a sudden become much better players than they ever were um, and are very critical. Yes, there's a time to be critical when it's warranted, but um, you just need to be, yeah, media just need to think that their opinions aren't as important as they think they are. It's great that you've been able to share your journey with us, Brownie, over the last hour or so. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Thanks very much. And hopefully those people who do have those perceptions about you might have learned a little bit about you. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully, but who cares? Um, Give my best to your old man. Yeah, I will. And let's hope that those racehorses continue to get faster. We need as a couple go on. more winners. All yeah. right. Best of luck to you. Thanks, Thanks for Pete. coming in. Campbell Brown joining us as our special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with another edition of the program right here at the same time next week on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.